BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, all eyes are on San Jose, California, and a first-of-its-kind gun control law that may surprise you. It has plenty of supporters and opponents. We'll tell why it could have implications for all of us. Sunday, March 26, 2023, on Full Measure, I'm off to San Jose, California, for a look at a unique and controversial new gun control law. After a Supreme Court decision last summer threw out New York's long-standing gun control law and laws like it in other states, many cities and states have been looking for new ways to restrict guns in a fashion that is defensible under the Constitution. First, you'll hear from the brains behind San Jose's law, Sam Licardo, who was mayor of San Jose when he came up with the idea and continues to work on it now that he is term-limited out of office. Then, we'll hear from someone in a group that opposes the law. Here's Sam Licardo. Well, like all big city mayors, uh, we had been thinking hard about how we could reduce violence from gunshots here in our city because, uh, like every big city, we're afflicted with violence. And uh, the mural behind me is a mural uh, of a 13-year-old girl. Her name is Kayla Salazar. Uh, She was the victim of the mass shooting. Uh, just outside our city, Gilroy Garlic Festival, a couple of years ago. Uh, she was a San Jose resident. It's one of three sisters who, uh, who lost her life. And uh, her life is memorialized behind me. And it was after that incident that it became obvious to me that we needed to take greater risk in doing something. There are a lot of laws that confine and restrict cities about what can be done. Uh, state preemption, federal law of various kinds. So we just had to find a path to do something. And so we started working on it, <clears throat> brought in folks who are experts in a lot of the legal issues and reached out in the community. And what became apparent is that you know, this is, like so many issues in our country, deeply divisive. There are folks who are adamant that can't take away their guns. And let's face it, we have 400 million guns in our country. We're not set legal in to make them go away. So we had to do something that would recognize the reality. The guns are in our streets, they're in our community. How do we make gun ownership safer? So that's the premise we really started with. Can you just sort of tick off the ideas, and then I'll ask you some more specific questions about it, but what what's behind the actual law? Well, there are two elements of this law. Uh, one is we want to see how we can reduce the unintentional harms from shootings, which are actually very common. On about 26,000 Americans go into an emergency room every year because of unintentional shootings. We lose hundreds of children that way. Um, about four and a half million kids right now live in a house where a gun is kept 
loaded but unlocked. And so there are things we know that gun owners can do to protect children, protect their own families and their communities. And we know that insurance is much more effective at those kind of preventative measures than the government is. It's the insurance will require certain things in order to cover. We want insurance companies to get in this game, encourage gun owners to get gun safety locks, get gun safes, uh, to take gun safety courses. Uh, the trigger locks and the chamber load indicators, those are certainly uh, elements that most gun owners don't currently use but could uh, if there was a financial incentive for them to do that. So we know that premiums can have that financial nudge that gun owners might need. And we've seen that certainly in the case of automobiles, uh, the dramatic reduction in automobile deaths and injuries over the last 15 years because insurance companies have been involved in pushing folks to get the analog brakes and the airbags and all the other things that make us safer. And most importantly, encouraging drivers to get the good driver discount. Is this a way to sort of get the government out of it and avoid some of the constitutional objections to say the government's not making you take these classes and do these things? The government's simply saying you have to have insurance and it's a private company telling you what you have to do. Well, I'd like to believe so. I know there are those who would argue the government is still requiring the insurance. And, and we think that there's ample historic basis for that and that's constitutional and obviously the courts will decide. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're trying to get past this very polarized battle uh, that the right and left are having over guns and, and talk about how we can agree that if we had safer gun ownership, we could at least reduce the harm, the deaths and the injuries. So the insurance is one element of this. Um, the other element, which I think in many ways is much more important, uh, is a fee that would be used to fund uh, prevention programs in various ways, uh, reducing domestic violence, suicide, mental health uh, services, gun safety classes, a host of measures that can be taken to make those who are living in homes with a gun, safer. Uh, all the data shows, and I think Stanford came out with the study last year, it's very clear that whatever the, the malady might be, whether it's domestic violence, uh, depression, whole host of issues that we know that families are dealing with every day, if there's a gun in a home, the outcomes are far, more, far worse and far more likely to result in death. So if we can reach out to those same families and provide them the services they need, particularly mental health, uh, we can do a world of good in reducing that harm. Problem is, cities don't have those resources. So the ordinance would require that gun owners pay a fee, and those dollars would be used by a local foundation to fund nonprofits that would be involved in doing that work. How much is the fee? The fee is $25. Per year? That's right. And then it goes to a group that will then, or groups, reach out and do gun violence prevention activities. Yeah, and the, you know, the good news is we have nonprofits that are already deeply engaged in domestic violence prevention and mental health provision. Uh, and so we know that the services are out there. They're underfunded. Uh, they're not able to make the connections all the time to be able to get to where the need is the greatest. And we want to make sure we have the resources to actually enable them to be effective. You mentioned the garlic festival killer, and I don't remember much about him offhand. Yeah. Would any of these provisions potentially have stopped him from act, from taking action? I don't want to reduce every case of mass violence to mental health. 
Uh, but let's face it, uh, we know an awful lot of these shooters have very severe mental health issues. Uh, and I don't want to play amateur psychologist in this case, but this was a young man who was drawn um, to a racist ideology and clearly had mental health issues. I'd like to believe uh, if we had an organization that knew he was troubled and was able to get to him and reach him before he made the decision to go buy that gun in Nevada, um, that would have made a difference. Uh, obviously, you can't possibly know and you're not going to prevent all the harm. All you can do is try. And this is our effort to at least make the effort to see, can we... Yeah, I'm going to try to rephrase that. I'm sorry. This initiative is an effort to see how can we direct the services and resources where they could have the most impact. Um, there's domestic violence, suicide prevention, mental health, reducing the likelihood that a person with a gun will do harm. Um, so part of the provisions inc include you have to keep your paperwork with you. I guess that you pay the fee or you have insurance or both. That's right. With the gun. Yep. Um, which makes sense. On the other hand, are the, is the other side, and I haven't interviewed them yet, are they saying that's too close to you must have your papers with you? Mm -hmm. Does it sound like something that the government's doing involving a constitutional right that's just going too far and sounds too bad? Well, all of us drive every day, and we're required to keep proof of insurance and registration with the car. Uh, this is not, you have to keep proof of identification with you at all times. This is keep it with the gun. Uh, that is the instrument that can cause the harm. Just demonstrate that you've paid the fee and you have the insurance. I mean, the, the difference being, I don't think we have a constitutional right to have a driver's license and have a car. Yeah, People but, argue we do have one to bear arms. And the good news is there's an awful lot of historical precedent and legal precedent show that, for example, when the 14th century, uh, I'm sorry, I'll try this again. Mm -hmm. The good news is there's a lot of constitutional and historical precedent uh, for these kinds of requirements. Uh, when the 14th Amendment was passed in 1860s, there were called surety laws in many states throughout the country. In fact, the Supreme Court's recent decision referred to many of these surety laws um, that would require gun owners to, in fact, uh, pay sureties uh, to compensate those who are harmed uh, for whatever harm may result. Uh, from the use of that gun, that is insurance. Uh, this is something that's existed in our country for hundreds of years. And I think those who were framing uh, these constitutional measures were well aware of these requirements. Have other cities or states talked with you or San Jose about this and described some interest in following the same path? Yeah, a lot of mayors reached out to me because I think mayors are uniquely frustrated by violence in their communities. Uh, so far, several states have introduced uh, measures of some kind. Um, here in California, uh, after we introduced ours, uh, Nancy Skinner, the chair of the budget committee, introduced uh, a measure here. Uh, I know New Jersey recently introduced some legislation. Uh, whether or not those pass, I don't know. But Could Congress do something like this? Yeah, actually, you know, every year there's actually been an insurance requirement bill uh, that has been proposed for several years uh, and hasn't gotten anywhere. Never gotten out of committee. 
the reality. Like almost a response to the fact that the federal government, there's a lot of discussion in Congress and so on about doing certain measures, but these measures seem to never come to fruition. So is this why, I guess, San Jose said we need to do something? Well, there are powerful forces at work in Washington, D.C. We know the gun lobby is very powerful, um, and there are a lot of ideological forces at work. The reality is cities can be more nimble, more pragmatic. Um, we don't operate with an army of lobbyists on both sides. Uh, mayors are able to actually get things done that are much harder to get done in Congress. I saw, I read as part of the research on this that you or someone said, this was like two years in the making, and a lot of lawyers looked at it to try to make sure this was bulletproof in terms of court challenges. Where does it stand today, and what do you think is going to happen? Well, there's no such thing as anything being bulletproof, and pardon the pun, but uh, you know, we know there will be, <clears throat> be plenty more litigation to go. Um, <clears throat> the good news is the U.S. District Court has agreed with our position so far. Nine out of the ten claims have been dismissed. Um, we know the gun groups will continue to litigate uh, in this area of regulation. There's no good deed that goes unlitigated. And so this is just something we anticipated. Um, a local law firm uh, headed by, a, by an attorney, Joe Kochet, uh, was kind enough to take this on as a pro bono project. So they're representing the city uh, and they're committed to this. So they'll continue to litigate this all the way to the Supreme Court. And I know this is different, but are you thinking in some term, that the mood of the court, should this make it to the Supreme Court, is more one of not letting there be sort of government control or interference? Well, I didn't agree with the Supreme Court decision in Bruin last year uh, that invalidated the concealed carry permits. But the good news is that opinion actually had a lot of reference to the historic precedent of surety laws, for example, in the 1860s in many states. Um, and we know this is a court that's very wedded to those historic precedents. So we feel confident that there's plenty of precedent for this. Um, you know, the notion that somehow or another there are constitutional rights that could never in any way uh, be taxed or assessed with a fee, that's just nothing the Supreme Court has ever decided. The question isn't whether or not there's a tax or a fee. The question is, <clears throat> is that unduly burdensome, the exercise of constitutional rights? Um, we have taxes, for example, on newspaper uh, companies that uh, are obviously deeply engaged in First Amendment activity. Uh, if you want to join a, an association or create one at the state, you need to go pay a fee to the Secretary of State. Uh, these are common fees that are paid all the time in the exercise of constitutional rights. The question is, are they unduly burdensome? We think this is a pretty modest fee to apply, particularly in a, in a world where guns cost hundreds or even thousands of dollars for a typical owner. And then my last question, I didn't see this argument. Maybe it's been made, and I thought of it. The law-abiding citizens will buy their insurance and sure. keep their papers with them. The crooks, who probably do commit most of the violent crime, and maybe even come from outside San Jose in many cases, they're not going to buy insurance and be contributing to this overall effort that you talk about. What right. about that argument? Yeah, You're making the law-abiding good people basically subsidize and kind of pick up for the criminals. Well, part of this is uh, one way to rapidly identify who the criminals are is when you're asked, do you have insurance or have you paid a fee? If the answer is no, um, that puts you on a radar. Uh, it means someone's got to pay a fine. And obviously, uh, that enables uh, police department to ask additional questions. 
So uh, that is helpful uh, for those of us who are deeply involved as a, a formal criminal prosecutor, uh, as you think about how the Fourth Amendment works. Uh, when someone has demonstrated noncompliance with the law, then the police are able to ask additional questions, and that's helpful. Uh, secondly, we know there's an enormous amount of harm that can be averted, even within the realm of those who are law-abiding. Like the 26,000 people who will go to the emergency room every year uh, because of accidental shootings. Overwhelmingly, uh, our people come from families who are abiding, law-abiding. They're, they're doing their best. Uh, the truth is there's a lot of harm, suicide, domestic violence, um, that is resulting in families that are ostensibly or otherwise law-abiding. We know we can do more to reduce injuries and deaths, and we have to. In a moment, the other side of the story. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Now we hear from Tim Biddle, Chief Counsel for the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. If you had to summarize what the controversy in San Jose is about before we get into it, in just a paragraph or even a phrase, what would you say? Um, well, if I was representing the National Association of Gun Rights, I would say that uh, it's about... Um, uh, impairing the constitutional right to keep and bear arms. But for my organization, uh, Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, uh, we're mainly concerned with the fee uh, that's being charged, an annual fee in, in order to um, own a gun in, in uh, San Jose. And for us, it's, we believe it's a tax, which under California law would need voter approval that it never got. Um, also that it's a, a violation of your First Amendment rights uh, to free speech and association because the fee uh, has to get paid to a private nonprofit organization that the city designates. And so they're forcing gun owners to associate with this organization and to support it financially, whether or not the gun owner approves of the activities or the messaging of the private nonprofit. Now, there were a number of claims initially, and I'm not sure which ones were brought by which group, but most of them have been thrown out so far. I know this will keep going, but the, the other side told us there's only one remaining claim about the fees. Is that your understanding, too? No. Uh, that was true um, a month ago. I don't know when you spoke to them. Um, but what happened was, um, well, first, let me just back up for a second. The National Association of Gun Rights 
filed their lawsuit in federal court, uh, Northern District um, uh, Federal Court. Uh, my organization uh, filed in state court, Santa Clara County Superior Court, and uh, the city removed our case to federal court, and then the court consolidated the two cases. So as soon as that consolidation took place, then the city filed a motion to dismiss uh, both of our lawsuits on the grounds that they were not ripe yet because the city had not designated a nonprofit yet. And um, the, the, the court agreed that un until um, the judge could um, uh, determine what the activities of the nonprofit uh, were going to be and what the messaging of the nonprofit was going to be, it didn't have enough information to rule on the case. So uh, our judge dismissed the two cases with leave to amend. In other words, she's not saying you're out of court completely. It's just you have to come back later. So she gave the city until December 31st. That, that dismissal was back in August. So she gave the city until December 31st to designate a nonprofit and then gave us until February 2nd to file an amended complaint giving specific details about the nonprofit that supported our claims. Well, December 31st came and went, and the city did not choose a nonprofit. Um, so we filed a, a request for an extension of time to file our amended complaint because we still knew no more than we had known back in August when our lawsuits were dismissed. And although, although the court did nothing to um, uh, punish the city for never designating a nonprofit, it denied our motion for uh, uh, an extension of time. So on February 2nd, we filed an amended complaint that basically said the same thing as our first complaints did. And immediately the city filed another motion to dismiss uh, on the same grounds that the cases are not right yet because there's no nonprofit. So our opposition to that is due this Thursday and the hearing uh, is scheduled for June 15th. But right now we, we have a full complaint worth of uh, claims. Okay. Um, let me give a couple of their sides and let you answer it. Um, what you said just makes sense. So you kind of, addressed it already in a way, but the other side argues there are fees on all kinds of things that involve people's rights. There have been fees before. There are fees involving guns that already exist. Why would it be wrong to impose a fee now? Well, it's not necessarily wrong to impose a fee. Um, in California, we have a constitutional definition of what is a tax and what is a fee. And um, in order for something to be a fee, it has to be in exchange for something that the fee payer uh, wants and is receiving. So um, maybe I'm paying a fee to get a permit or I'm paying a fee um, to register my gun on, a, you know, a, a, a list of gun owners that the police department keeps or something like that. So there's some, um, you know, regulatory process that applies to me or uh, a permit that I'm getting or in other contexts, you know, you pay a fee uh, for utilities or water or sewer treatment, that kind of thing where you're getting a, a product or a service from the government in exchange for your fee. Here, the fee isn't 
first of all, it's not paid to the government. It's going to be paid to this private nonprofit organization. And uh, the city's San Jose's ordinance explains what the nonprofit has to use the money for. Well, it, there are certain minimum things they have to use the money for. There's actually a lot of discretion on how they spend the money. But, but they do have to provide, um, see if I can remember the list. So it's uh, um, domestic violence prevention, gender-based violence prevention, uh, suicide counseling, counseling for victims of gun violence, and then uh, gun harm prevention education. So you can tell from that list that uh, a gun owner like me would probably not need any of those services or request any of those services. Um, so I'm not getting anything in return for my payment of the fee. Those services are basically offered to the general public, and that's the definition of a tax. When the government takes money from me in order to provide a public service to everybody. So if they had done this as a tax with the vote of the local voters, would you have a gripe with it? No. Okay. Um, in the big picture, what do you think is going on here? Besides picking apart both sides and the specifics of what the other side is doing and challenging in a court, in the big picture, looking at what's happening in America, it seems like there are many cities and states and counties that are stepping in where Congress has not. You know, there's a lot of debate that Congress ought to do X, Y, or Z, and they don't do a lot of it. And the states and cities seem to be trying to thinking, trying to think of ways to do it themselves. How would you characterize what you see happening? Well, um, I can't quote them exactly, but I remember that there was uh, an interview with the mayor of San Jose right after this ordinance was passed, and he was jubilant that it had passed. Um, and he said something like, now we have a tool to take more guns off the street. Now, obviously, um, criminals are not going to be participating in this program. They're not going to be obtaining insurance, which is the other half of the ordinance. Um, you have to maintain uh, uh, gun harm insurance, um, and they're not going to be paying the fee uh, or registering their guns or anything like that. So it seems like the mayor's um, uh, objective was to take guns out of the hands of law-abiding citizens, and I'm not sure why. Um, maybe there's a fear that if, if people own guns in their private homes and criminals will be able to break in and steal those guns. I'm not sure, but I'll give you one little, one sentence about that. Okay. They say that there's a pretty high percentage of people who are unintentionally harmed with guns in the house, whether it's through an accident or higher chance of suicide involved in a home that, with a gun in it and so on. Okay. Well, when he said that this is a tool that they can use to get more guns out of private hands, um, what he meant is that uh, the ordinance requires you to keep uh, proof of insurance and proof of payment of the fee with the gun at all times and to produce that proof any time a peace officer requests it. There's no other details than that. So I assume a peace officer could knock on the door of your home and ask you for proof that you that you carry the insurance um, and that you've paid the fee. And then the ordinance says if you don't produce proof to a peace officer when requested, 
uh, you're subject to a fine and confiscation of your firearm. Are you concerned that if this stands up to challenges, that this will be done in other places? Because the mayor did tell us that there are mayors of other cities who are waiting to see how this turns out and maybe going to jump on board with something similar. Yes, uh, I think that it probably will set a precedent that other cities follow, but it could become state law because the California legislature is currently considering in this legislative session a bill that would require insurance for gun owners. There's, there's no mention in the bill of paying a fee, but the, the insurance requirement could become state law. How do you feel about the insurance requirement? Well, like I said, my organization doesn't take a position on the insurance requirement one way or the other because we're a taxpayer organization. Um, the, the reason NAGR is challenging it is because the ordinance, while it requires gun owners to um, purchase and maintain insurance, doesn't require private insurance companies to make that insurance available or to make it available affordably. And so their argument is we have this um, guaranteed right in the Constitution to keep and bear arms. You can't condition the exercise of that right on for-profit business decisions that a private insurance company makes um, because if the insurance next year becomes unavailable, that means you don't get to own a gun anymore. It almost seems to me, too, once the insurance companies know you have to have the insurance, they can pretty much price it wherever they want, like even out of reach almost. True that. We spoke to a gun owners who indicated if all of this becomes the law, a lot of people will not abide by it, sort of a civil disobedience. Have you heard about that, or what do you think? Okay. no. I mean, maybe if somebody organized a movement, but I, you, you can't fight City Hall, you know? And <laughs> as soon as you identify yourself as one of these scofflaws, they'll probably take your gun away. So, This subject, with additional interviews, is the topic of my cover story on Sunday, March 26th. You can find a list of stations and times for full measure by going to CherylAckison.com and clicking the full measure tab. If you miss the program, no worries. We post the segment at fullmeasure.news after it airs around, I'd say, noon Eastern time on Sundays. That's at fullmeasure.news. And I have some exciting news about the website. It has not been super user-friendly these past eight years at fullmeasure.news, but we are finally about to get a makeover, which will make the live stream on Sundays at 9.30 Eastern time better. And the search bar will work well for the first time, and there'll be a lot of good stuff. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and that if so, you'll leave us a good review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. Be sure and check out my other podcast, The Cheryl Agason Podcast, for more topics you won't hear on other media outlets. Now you can support independent journalism causes that's never been more important by visiting CherylAgason.com and clicking the store tab. There are some wonderful, thought-provoking, and fun ideas for gifts or for yourself, products designed exclusively for independent and free thinkers with proceeds benefiting independent reporting causes. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.